Welcome to the first episode of Conservation for Kids, the podcast where we learn about cool animals and environments from the deepest ocean to the tallest mountain. I'm so glad you're here. Before we get started, let me introduce myself. My name is Samuel Morris. I'm 12 years old and I live in Sydney, Australia with my parents, my three siblings, and my dog, Phoenix. Ever since my first word, I've been fascinated by animals in nature. My first word, unlike most people, was not mommy or daddy. It was dog, not a person, it was an animal. Also, I lived in loads of places with cool and different environments, including the United States, where I'm from, with cool animals like wolves and bald eagles. I've also lived in Costa Rica for three years where I had loads of experience with amazing animals like jaguars and toucans. Let's start with a question. What is conservation and why should it matter to you? Conservation is the act of preserving the natural places and animals of the world in order to protect the planet for future generations and take care of what we have been given. We need conservation for many reasons. It helps to prevent climate change, It keeps the beauty of our world safe, and it saves lives. It's no secret that our planet needs help. Global warming is destroying the natural environment, and we must do everything we can to help the natural world. We are the last generation that can stop global warming. We have a choice. One of the major threats to our environment is climate change. Climate change refers to the changes in global temperatures in other parts of the atmosphere. Global temperature is warming. Weather patterns are changing, polar ice is melting, and sea levels are rising. These changes have been caused by things like deforestation and our use of fossil fuels that create greenhouse gases. All of this has a very real impact on our environment. In this decade alone, 467 species have been declared extinct. No matter where you live, you have probably seen the effects of climate change. Here where I live, in Australia, in the summer of 2019 to 2020, there was massive bushfires. 5.5 million hectares were lost, 26 people died, and 2,448 homes were destroyed. For my listeners in the U.S., that's a fire that destroyed an area almost the size of the state of West Virginia. It's an area even larger than the country of Costa Rica where our first guest lives. We must address this issue. There is still hope. If we choose to put in the effort, then we can address these problems. Maybe you're thinking, all those facts can feel kind of overwhelming. I'm just a kid. What difference can I make? But when each week on Conservation for Kids, we'll speak to an expert who will help us to understand a conservation topic. I'll be asking the guest, what is one action kids and families can take to make a difference, to give us all practical steps we can take to make a difference. We'll also have regular challenges like mystery sounds and questions from the audience to get you and your family thinking, talking, and laughing. But conservation is serious, but it can also be lots of fun. Now it's time to meet our first conservation expert, Nicholas Ramirez. Nicholas is the executive director of the Green Building Council of Costa Rica. He is motivated by a sense of stewardship and responsibility to future generations. He studied civil engineering and was an independent builder for 15 years before he became a founding member of the Green Building Council. 
Thank you so much for joining us today, Nick. Thanks a lot, Sammy. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, before we start off, this is a conservation podcast. Can you tell us a bit about the environment where you live? Sure. Um, happy to. I live in San Jose, Costa Rica in Central America. Um, this is a, a country that's somewhat known for its biodiversity and ecotourism and stuff like that. Um, but there's you know, still a lot of work to do here. There have been lots of, um, let's say, positive things that have been achieved over the years uh, due to really good ideas that some people had a few generations ago, but we still got a long way to go, as I said, but yeah, that's where I live. And I'm, I'm happy to be here doing this work. Can you tell us about the story of how you ended up in your current role as executive director of the Green Building Council in Costa Rica? Sure. Um, I was, uh, I, I studied civil engineering and as I was finishing my career, I started up a small construction company. Um, and, um, as, as I, once I graduated, I, I dedicated myself to that full time. And I was a, an independent contractor for about 15 years. And back in, I think it was around 2012, I, w- I had some clients that were really interested in like green environmental projects. So I started learning more about it and it kind of, kind of caught on and I really found a passion in that area. So along with about, I think, four or five other civil engineers, we formed uh, uh, like a small nonprofit association that was the Green Building Council. So I was actually a founder of it and a volunteer for several years while I kept working in, in construction. And then the, it started to grow. Uh, the, the NGO grew a little by little. And just a few years ago, around 2018, um, it was at a point where they needed an executive director. And I was just wanting to get out of being a full-time contractor to spend more time at home with my family. Uh, so they offered me the role. Could you explain what a green building is? A green building has probably lots of different answers depending on who you ask. Um, but in general terms, we uh, most of us understand it to be what we would call a sustainable building. Uh, okay, because sometimes when people think green or environmental, it focuses extreme strictly on environmental aspects, right? But when you think about a green building or a sustainable building, it usually um, involves more of like the three pillars of sustainability, which are, which are a balance between social aspects, environmental aspects, and economic aspects, trying to make them all work together, not promoting one at the cost of the others. That's what makes it sustainable in time. What are the benefits of having a green building? Well, like I mentioned, you can pretty much look at it from those three aspects that I just mentioned. So if you have a green building, it could, you could have benefits, first of all, if you're like the owner of the green building, or if you live in the green building or work or study in the green building. Also, if you're the person who operates the green building. So I'll give you a few examples if you want, you know, um, green buildings from, from a technical aspect, they tend to be fairly efficient in terms of water consumption and energy consumption and stuff like that. And the, just the general use of resources. So they tend to be cheaper to operate. So like if you live in a green building, you're probably going to pay a little less in your water bill or your electricity bill than you would if it, in a standard building. It, those are like economic aspects. All right. Now, if you're looking at the social side, that building should have pretty good natural ventilation, good access to sunlight, um, nice areas for like kids and, and people of all ages to like have like, you know, to relax or to play or to do whatever. Um, and also it should promote equal access for different people it should be something that if you're whether you're very old or very young you still be able to use like all the stuff that's in the building whether that be like a like a pool or a a gym or and also from an environmental side um 
if you're if you're in that same building, some of the benefits you might see are like, for example, the the materials that were used to to, to make that building weren't at a very high cost or for to, to nature, to the environment, in that in the sense that you're not using, let's say, like very rare and ancient precious wood from the Amazons of Brazil that will never grow back because you brought that into your building. You're using stuff that's more what we call rapidly renewable resources or that kind of stuff. So those are the kind of things that you can see from each of those three different aspects. So just in, in one example, let's say. How does the way we build affect climate? Ooh, that's a good question, Tammy. Pretty much anything we do affects the climate and can affect it in a good way or in a bad way. <laughs> but there's usually some kind of effect there, what we call like a carbon footprint, because we usually talk about carbon from in terms of uh, greenhouse gases and stuff like that and how that affects the climate. Now, there are some different points of view. Different people think that that may affect more or less whatever, but the point is that there is change in climate, no matter what point of view you have. Um, so what we do and how we do it can affect it in different ways, but basically um, you might want to look at it as like a different kind of like a budget, you know, just like you have, if you want to build a house and you have a budget, like, you know, the wood's going to cost me this much, the cement blocks are going to cost me this much, the roof is going to cost me that much, and that's worth that much money in dollars or euros or whatever. And then you also have, let's say like that, a carbon bill, on that. So depending on what you choose, there are, there is also a bill that says, okay, that kind of, let's say, um, um, that kind of paint may, may have a higher carbon cost than this other kind of paint. You know what I mean? And like the example I told you before, if you're bringing materials from very far away, if you're in Australia and you're bringing very cool and beautiful wood from Costa Rica, getting it there on a ship or by plane or whatever has a huge carbon cost. Whereas if you're using more local stuff, your carbon cost is going to be lower. So how a building can affect the company basically has different, different ways of doing it, but it has more to do with carbon. What we call, we, we talk about two things in that. I mean, I won't get into too much detail, but there's usually, uh, let's say, um, operational carbon, and then there's um, built-in carbon or embodied carbon. So embodied carbon is what's already locked into the building once it's built, even though you haven't started using it yet. You know, once it's built, there was always a certain amount of energy that was used to make the floor, to make the windows, to do this in the materials that are in the building. And then once you're using the building, if it's an apartment building, for example, and you're living in there, you're using water, you're using energy, you're using gas maybe to cook or whatever. And those things that you're using also have another carbon cost. Okay. So those are the, basically the two, the two, let's say, areas. Embedded carbon that you can't do anything about because it's locked in. And then operational and maintenance carbon, which is on, on how you operate the building moving forward over time. And so you can imagine that if you're living in a building for 60 or 80 years, you're gonna that's going to accumulate each year a certain amount of carbon cost, whereas the other part was just locked in at the beginning. Okay. For example, if you're in your house, you can make decisions like I want to use lead lighting or I want to open the window instead of use the air conditioning. So different decisions you can make to be like more or less efficient also has an effect on that. What are some of the conservation policies in Costa Rica? What works well and what do you think can be improved? Costa Rica at one point had very little of its forest left because we were cutting a lot of forest to use the wood for construction, for building, and for other industries, right? And then uh, they realized that this was probably not something that was too sustainable, that is going to be a problem moving forward. So Costa Rica at that time um, implemented uh, several laws to uh, protect a lot of its forests in terms of so they make them national parks or protected areas and that kind of thing. So that way you can no longer go in there to cut 
you know, big trees for, 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 for wood and for timber and stuff like that. You can't clear cut to put in cattle and other things. So those, that kind of legislation that was put back, like I said, started like thinking around the seventies, um, helped to rebuild the, the, the forest coverage in Costa Rica, um, quite a bit. And today it's actually at a very high level. I think Costa Rica has one of the highest levels of, let's say, um, forest recuperation. Also Costa Rica uh, published a very interesting, um, plan in 2018 called the national decarbonization plan which is how the government of Costa Rica plans to get to net zero by the, the year 2050, 2050, which is a, a very important year, which was decided by the United Nations in the Paris Agreement. Okay, that's the Paris Agreement regards climate change, trying to stop irreversible damage due to climate change. So the two big years for them are 2030 and 2050. And so Costa Rica published and put into effect a national decarbonization plan to try and be a, a decarbonized nation by 2050. What hasn't worked so well is the second part of your question, um, that they have very, very good ideas or, or let's say goals at a high level at the national government level, but no one really has has had the chance to say, well, and how are we going to do that? Like, how is that going to work? You know, that's really cool to do uh, by 2050 to do this, but how do we do that at a city level? How's that going to work in the rural areas? How are different people in the country actually going to make this happen? Because we have goals, but we don't have like, let's say like a plan for implementation. How do these policies differ from other parts of the world? Yeah, um, let's say um, the example I just gave you for Costa Rica, for example, the National Decarbonization Plan, that is what many people call uh, a top-down approach, which is where the national government, the, the top part of the government, like the big, the head honchos, you know, the the, the, the the top leaders of the country, set up a plan, and then the rest of the country tries to implement that. That's not that common. What has happened in several countries like in Europe, for example, I don't know what the case is in Australia. You guys have an awesome Green Building Council in Australia, um, but I'm not sure exactly how that work has been done between them and the government. But for example, in Europe, what was happened quite a bit is that there'll be certain cities that have like really, really good ideas and and really really interesting strategy and they implement it at a city level okay like so they'll start doing something let's say in paris the paris talks about the 15 minute city where they want people to not have to move more than 15 minutes to go anywhere else or in 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 holland or uh, um let's say um amsterdam where you can go everywhere by bike and they have really good bike paths and people are everything's really accessible by bike so sometimes these really good ideas will start at a city level and people realize that it works really well and they realize how to implement it. So then they start to kind of replicate and escalate so they can, uh, let's say, copy what worked in that city in other parts of the city so they can go from bottom up, which is from city level to national level. So they'll find something that works good at a city and they, they make it, let's say, like a law or legislation at the city. And then they show the government how that worked and then the government implements it at a country level. So that's a bottom up approach. OK, so I'm not I don't think there's any one that's better than the other, but different things have happened. And that's how Costa Rica may, might vary from others. We started with a top down and now we're trying to implement, whereas other countries have gone bottom up. Are there some really good examples of green buildings in Costa Rica? There's quite a few. There's quite a few. Um, the the buildings that the, the buildings and projects that have had the, the, the most success from a sustainability standpoint here in Costa Rica are the ones that involve different players from the beginning. And from the private sector, um, there's a, one that comes to mind is one called Torre Universal, which is a tower that's right in the middle of downtown. And they have like, uh, let's say, like some restaurants on the first few floors and then offices on the other one. But they took a lot of stuff into account. They made sure that they had access to the bus routes. They have like lots of 
parking lots that are for, for, um, for people with electric vehicles so they can plug in their cars where they're working. They have, for example, uh, lots of a whole area for people who want to come by a bike and they have showers there. So if you want to bike to work, for example, you can bike to work, park your bike, shower, again, you know, all fancy if you use a tire or whatever, and then go and work and then go back home. So these are just little changes that people make to their buildings, but they make them much easier to be sustainable. Can you suggest one action that families can take to make a difference on um, this topic? First of all, the, the most important thing is that you're asking the questions because uh, the, the reason you're asking the question is because that means you've already realized that you can make a change at your family level. Sometimes people think, no, this problem's too big. I can't do anything. It makes no difference what me and my family do. Things are going to be the same anyway. So the fact that you're asking that is really good, Sammy, because that means that we've already realized that we can make a change if we do actions, if we implement actions at our at each one of our levels, you know, whether it be at your family, at your school, at the corner store, whatever. So, um, yeah, one action that families can do, I think um, – I would start with the biggest one. I don't know if you guys in Australia uh, talk about the three R's that I, when I was a kid, they used to teach us reduce, reuse, recycle, and all those things. Right. Um, so I think as a family, the best thing that usually the biggest impact is not so much thinking about, for example, what you recycle after, but to reduce, to make sure we're not consuming more than we really need. We, we wouldn't have such a big problem with waste in terms of how do we recycle this and how do we recycle that if we were just buying less or consuming less in the first place. Anything that, that implies re, reducing what you're consuming, right? Because like I mentioned before, remember I was talking about embodied energy? When you buy like, you know, plastic jars or, or, or whatever, the stuff you buy already has energy that was spent to make it, right? And that transforms into carbon, it transforms into greenhouse ga uh, gases. So um, is, uh, as a family, I think the one action is each, per, each member of the family should see what can we reduce? What can we do less? Um, <laughs> you've got brothers. I'll give you an example that in some families is, is a little tough. But for example, sometimes my daughters would prefer a new T-shirt than a hand-me-down T-shirt, <laughs> to give you an example, right? So sometimes, you know, we can avoid buying something new just by reusing what we have within our family. If you have brothers and sisters, you can hand stuff down or whatever. Um, you know, anything that implies reducing what we're purchasing, what we're acquiring, you know, first of all, must, makes us appreciate what we have much more and it also has a huge impact on what we're not um, putting back into the environment in terms of uh, carbon footprint so just analyze everything i do and say i can reduce can i can i buy for i'll give you an example we do in, in my house can we do freshly squeezed oranges instead of buying orange uh, orange juice in the tetra pack boxes that are really tough to recycle because those will last forever just to break down afterwards that kind of thing so what stuff can we use in a, in a way re reducing what we're consuming and buying which ends up being waste as well right so i would start there with the supermarket or with clothes for when school comes around or all those kinds of anything that anything we can reduce is a huge help thank you so much for joining us today nick my pleasure, Sammy. Thank you for, for, for letting me on, on your podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nick Ramirez from the Green Building Council of Costa Rica. It was interesting to hear about the phrase, reduce, reuse, recycle. In my family, we think a lot about recycling, but Nick had some interesting ideas about how we can reuse items in our homes to help the environment. Maybe you'd also like to learn about green buildings where you live. We have some links in the show notes for today's episode if you want to learn more about green buildings near you. Tune in next time for a conversation with Dr. Boris from Gordon College in the United States. I'm your host, Samuel Morris. Conservation for Kids was inspired by a project from my school, St. Paul's Grammar School in Sydney, Australia. 
I'd like to thank the Year 6 teachers, Mrs. Watson and Ms. Cohen, and our mentor, Ms. Baudinet, for their support. Fact-checking services are provided by Melanie Morris, and our executive producer is Peter Morris. A special thank you to today's guest, Nicholas Ramirez, from the Green Voting Council of Costa Rica. This is Conservation for Kids, the podcast where we learn about cool animals and environments from the deepest ocean to the tallest mountain. 